Well, good morning once again. Will you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22? Matthew chapter 22, we are in the middle of the Passion Week, a busy week, a critical week in the life of Christ. Jesus has done the triumphal entry. He's come in and he's possessed his temple. He's cleansed it from those who were turning it into something it was never designed to be. And he has restored what looks like to be the picture of right worship at this time, the Messiah teaching the people of God from the temple of God. And it's a remarkable thing that's happening. And in the midst of that, he is challenged. The religious leaders come up to him and they challenge him first on his authority. And he, of course, shuts that down with that brilliant question of his own. And then he moves into those three parables parables that aren't just highlighting his authority, but parables that instead highlight their rejection and their rebellion, that leave them with no place to go other than see themselves as the antagonists in those stories and worthy of judgment. And so they don't like that, of course, and the religious leaders now come and they determine that they are going to trap him, that they're going to try to ensnare him with his words. And that's what we began to look at last week. The first in a series of three challenges, once again, to Jesus brought with different questions by different groups of people. Last week, it was the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians, people who had nothing in common other than their hatred of Jesus, but that was enough to get them to challenge him, specifically when it came to taxes. Is it lawful, would God approve, of us sending our taxes on to Caesar? A simple question without a simple answer, because if Jesus says yes, the people would really begin to turn away from him. They, they would have to. The taxes from Rome were a burden. And not only that, but Rome itself represented this blasphemous system that not only oppressed the people of God, but that championed idolatry throughout the whole empire. How could we give our taxes to that? And if you would say no, then of course the Herodians have a reason to go to their masters and say that Jesus is just another rebel who's highlighting a tax insurrection and uh, the hope being then that Rome would come and do their dirty work for them and put Jesus to death. And so Jesus is really, from their estimation, left with absolutely nowhere to go. A simple question, one that demands a yes or no answer, but one where either way really puts him in a no-win situation. And so we saw that his answer is perfect as we would expect it to be, but it silences them because of the wisdom and because of really the wholeness of it. It demands submission and obedience in all areas. The first thing he says is, yes, pay the tax. Why? Because the people of God are characterized or ought to be characterized by submission. Submission to authority, not to deserving authority, not to perfect authority, but submission to authority is a consistent character trait of the people of God. But why is that? Because the people of God know that God is so sovereign, so very powerful, so very in control of the whole of his creation that he alone determines where authority goes. He sets the boundaries for, nation, for nations. He sets the authority and the time limit for kings. And so there is no authority outside of what God has established. And so as the one who fears God submits to authority, it's not an exercise or a recognition of the worthiness of that authority. It's a recognition of the power and the nature of God. We submit to authority because we believe in his authority. We submit to rulers because we understand the one who rules all rulers and we can trust his goodness and his sovereignty even when we cannot trust their goodness. But beyond that, he answers the much more far-reaching question, not just render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but really render to God what is God's. What ought you give to God? And of course, the answer is everything. Worship that involves our whole life, submission to everything we are, uh, worship with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, 
but we don't like that answer because we want to argue about the others. The, the Pharisees and the disciples of the Pharisees, the Herodians, really everyone there would have been far more interested in arguing over taxes than they would have been thinking through right worship. They miss the greater and want to focus on the lesser. They're asking Jesus about taxes while they're rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. One of those is a far bigger deal than the other. And we would be careful not to fall into that same trap. The problem's not politics, although politics are necessary. The problem wasn't who was ruling them, although that certainly played a part in their lives. The problem was a heart problem, as it always is. And we have to be careful that we're not far more eager to argue about what Caesar has robbed us of than we are willing to consider what we are actively robbing God of in relation to right worship. And from that, it moves directly into a second challenge that Jesus is faced with, and this time it's going to center on the resurrection. So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 22. And our passage this morning is going to be verses 23 to 33, and I'll read the first part of that to set the stage for where we're going. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher... Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his, mother, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. And the first married and died, and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. And so too the second and the third, and on down to the seventh. Now after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Let's pray. Lord, once again, uh, we pray and we ask that you would help us to see rightly. Uh, it's very easy to say Sadducees and Pharisees and Herodians have eyes that are blind to the truth. Lord, I would pray that we wouldn't be a people who come to the truth of your word and remain in blindness and darkness. Um, that's all that we bring to the table. And so we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. We ask that you would enlighten us, that you would help us to see clearly so that we might respond rightly. Lord, help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And we need your help to do that. So Lord, as we study your word today, let it be an act of worship. And Lord, I pray that you would again encourage us, enlighten us, challenge us, convict us through the truth of your word, and then help us rejoice in an obedient response to you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, there's something to be said for persistence. Uh, we're taught as little kids that sometimes persistence is what you need to get what you want. When mom says no, you can maybe go to dad and get what you want. And if that doesn't work, then you just keep going to both of them repeatedly until you wear down their resolve to live to the point where they just give in to what you want. Well, we've seen this in the grocery store, the, that poor mother who is at her wit's end dragging a child who just will not let go of that candy bar or whatever else they happen to have glommed onto in the moment until they're finally just so beyond themselves that they give in just for a moment of peace. Now, that's not the right response, but we all know what it's like to be at our very wit's end to where we can't take the one more question, the one more ask, the one more beg for that thing that they want. Now, uh, we do the same thing, we just get a little bit more sophisticated about it. It's the text followed by the other text and the email followed by the other email. Uh, we're not inherently a patient people. Uh, and what we see here is kind of a barrage that's aimed at Jesus. We have the ability and, you know, to break this up, to read it into sections and uh, to spread it out week after week. What we need to understand is that there is a, a funneling of intensity happening here. Uh, these people are persistent 
in their challenges to Jesus because they are consistent in their hatred of Jesus, and they are going to find a way to trip him up. First, it was the leaders as a collective unit challenging his authority. Last week, it was the uh, disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians who have come to Jesus. This week, it's a different group with a different question, but the aim is the same. The goal behind all of this is to get Jesus to mess up to the point where he cannot be who he claims to be and where he will be out of their hair forever. So first of all, we're going to look at the trial that they bring before him this time. What's the specific trial that they bring? And to do that, to open that up, we have to understand something about the ones that bring him. Verse 23, that same day, Sadducees came to him. And two things we need to see about these people. First of all, we've noted that at times, Matthew in his gospel uh, will sacrifice chronology for theme. Matthew is telling us something about the king and his kingdom. That is his point in writing this. He is displaying who Jesus is and why these kingdom teachings matter. And Matthew arranges his gospel so that like themes, like events, are grouped together. And there are some times when those things happen out of order, but Matthew is making a point. So when things like today come up, and Matthew opens with, uh, in that same day, it should help us to see that not only does it help us fill in kind of the gaps in our understanding of the Passion Week, but we're meant to see the, the urgency and the pressing nature here. Jesus isn't getting a break to recover, to recoup, to kind of uh, go with his disciples and refresh themselves. This is a constant barrage. What we need to understand is that all through this week, the pressure doesn't kind of come and then go and then come and go. This is a building thing that is leading us to the cross. And so in this same day, Sadducees now come to him. And we also need to understand who the Sadducees were. Uh, some of you are like me, and you've been in church forever. And we know that we should have a handle on who these people are and what they believe, but by the time you get to the end of the Passion Week and you have Sadducees and Pharisees and Herodians and scribes and chief priests and elders, it all gets a little bit blurry. And some of us haven't been exposed to the Bible for that long at all, and these might as well be completely foreign concepts. So we're going to spend a couple of minutes reminding ourselves of who the Sadducees are. Um, they are like the Pharisees, only in that those are both sects or breakdowns of Judaism in general. But really, that's about as far as the similarities go. The Pharisees, ultra-conservative, very, very orthodox. The Sadducees, not so much. Uh, the Pharisees would pour over the whole of the Old Testament as we know it, all of the writings, the prophets. Uh, they would pour over what the scribes and the rabbis had written and taught about it. Uh, the Sadducees were certainly uh, concerned with the Torah, the first five books of Moses, but beyond that, they argued whether they were even representative of what God thought or not. They really had no use for those things. Uh, the Pharisees believed in things like angels and the resurrection, and Matthew tells us something important here when he says that the Sadducees came to him, and they are the ones who say that there is no resurrection. The Sadducees don't believe in what we might call the supernatural. The Sadducees believed that what you saw was what you got, that there was no such thing as an angel. In fact, in Acts 23, verse 8, it says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. Nothing spiritual, there are no angels, and even you and I, human beings, don't have a spirit. They believe that when you died, uh, that was it. No resurrection, nothing else coming. Nothing miraculous, so we have kind of th this group who would really want to, what we would call in our modern kind of vernacular, demythologize God's word. They take the supernatural out and they insert naturalistic explanations, and we still have people that do that. Y you will hear people that say Genesis is not a recording of history. Uh, Genesis is simply a primitive way of understanding how things came into being that happened before scientific thought. 
Uh, you will hear people say uh, that things like a God who controls the weather are just a primitive way of understanding things that they couldn't understand, things like weather patterns and crops being raised. And you'll hear people say things like the miracles of Jesus will have a natural explanation behind them. You need to understand that that's not new. It's been around for a long time. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. He's right. These, these challenges to God's word have always been around, and the Sadducees were one of those groups that, in particular, and critical to what we're talking about today, say that there is no resurrection. Now, what's their story? That's the Sadducees. What's the story that they bring to him? Look at verse 24. They came to him, and they're saying, Teacher, Moses said... If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now that sentence makes no sense to us because we don't have a grounding in the law and we don't practice what's called Leverite marriage here. So I want you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 25 because I want you to understand kind of the theological foundation for their question. Even though they, by the way, don't believe in the question they're about to ask, we need to understand kind of the principle behind it. Deuteronomy is written to a people who are preparing to enter the promised land. God had redeemed a people, called them out of Egypt, and uh, pointed them toward a good land that was called and really covenant promised to be theirs. They come right up to the border of the promised land. They send out the spies in numbers, and when they see the land, they say, the land is good, but the people are big. Too big, we can't do it, this is not going to happen. Moses, what have you done? You know, it would be better for us to have died in the wilderness or in Egypt. And so they say, we're going to kill Moses, we're going to get a new leader, and we're going to turn back the way that we came. God intervenes, and God says, I have redeemed a people for myself, I have promised a land to them, and I don't fail in my promises, so returning to Egypt is not an option. But, you want to better, you say it's better to die in the desert? That is an option. So an entire generation wanders for 40 years in the wilderness until every single one of them dies. Deuteronomy is written to their children. Their children who now stand at the border of the promised land. And Moses, through a series of sermons, essentially calls them to faith where their parents failed. And Deuteronomy 25 is in the middle of one of those. In particular, Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, he begins to talk about marriage in a way that's very unfamiliar to us. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the firstborn son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. What it's saying is if you have two brothers, one of them is married and he dies, then it is the duty of the next brother to take that widow as his wife and to raise up children for his brother. And that sounds bizarre to us. That sounds completely foreign to us. But what you need to understand is these are people living under very specific covenant promises, covenant promises that deal directly with the land that they have been given. The promised land was given to the tribes and every tribe had an allotment. And within those tribal allotments, every family had an allotment. And so what would happen is if you had a child or a, a brother with no son, if you had a family without heir, then over time you could lose your inheritance. And those land promises were critical to these people. It was a part of God's built-in plan for continuing his people in the place that he had put them. 
So much so that even if you bought and sold land, even if you took your family's inheritance and you had to buy it and sell it out to other people, every 50 years you got a reset in the year of Jubilee and everything went back to the tribes and the land and the families the way that it was because God has designed this in perpetuity. He gave them that land forever and those promises matter. And so to continue to raise up heirs in the family name mattered. And it mattered so much that if you failed to do that, there were some very public consequences. Read Deuteronomy 25, 7. If the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, maybe she's not so attractive, maybe she's a little naggy, maybe he just doesn't want to, it doesn't matter, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. And the elders of the city will call him and speak to him, And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. She shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of the man who had his sandal pulled off. This public humiliation for doing it. God takes this seriously. In fact, if you want to see how seriously God takes the idea of lines being perpetuated, you can go back and read Genesis 38, and you read about a man named Onan who refused to do this, and God killed him for it. Why take it so seriously? Well, because that line in particular deals with the line of Judah, which will be the line of Christ, and a threat to that would be a threat to the seed promise, but that's a huge narrative that we simply don't have time for today. So that's the background to their question. Turn back to Matthew chapter 22 now, and we're going to see the rest of their story. Because although that's the foundation, now they are going to take it to the most ludicrous uh, level that they can possibly imagine. All right. So Moses said that the man's brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, verse 25. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. Seven brothers, one wife, the original Black Widow story. By the time you get to brother five and six, I'm thinking they are not excited about marrying this woman because something is happening to everybody else. But there's obviously no reality behind this story. They're simply reducing this to the most absurd level possible. And so their question is, All right, right, Jesus, if marriage is so uh, precious to God, and it certainly is, if the law is so important to God that he won't violate it, and that is certainly true, if marriage is important and the resurrection is real and the law is important and Moses commanded all these things, then in the end, in the resurrection, whose wife is she? She married to the first one, the last one. She married to all of them somehow. Why do they ask that? Certainly not because they're interested in learning. Remember, the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, they're asking a question about a long, drawn-out story that they don't believe in in the first place. Well, of course, their hope is to trip Jesus up and to make him look foolish. Because Jesus doesn't only believe in resurrection, Jesus is taught the resurrection. What have we seen from Matthew chapter 16 forward? I am going to Jerusalem where I will be handed over and I will die, but that's not the end of the story. I will be raised up on the third day. Jesus is taught resurrection specific to himself. If we were to read John chapter 11, when Lazarus dies, Jesus says John is going to rise again and he's interacting with Lazarus' sister Martha and Martha says, I know, uh, I know that he'll be raised in the resurrection in the last day. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He who believes in me will live even if he dies. So at this point in his ministry, Jesus has proven that he not only believes in a resurrection, not only teaches the resurrection, but he teaches that he is the resurrection, that he is the life. So they're taking a teaching of resurrection and they're extending it to the place where they think he will be unable to defend it. Because if you can make the resurrection sound foolish, then you can make Jesus sound foolish. And just like last week, the second part of our study today deals with his answer to their question. He moves from the trial onto the truth. And again, it deals not only with the surface of their question, it deals with their rebellion and their complete failure in the first place. Because all of these, every challenge to the truth like this, it never rattles Jesus because all it does is expose their wickedness. So let's look at the truth here. And first of all, what Jesus is going to highlight is the fact that they have missed the point altogether. Look at verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Now, how's that for direct? Because they haven't answered a question. You realize that? In their mind, they're the ones who have come up to Jesus and they said, so what's the deal here? What's going to happen? Is she one man's wife? Is she all of their wife? Is she nobody's wife? Jesus, you answer this question. Jesus says, you are wrong. They're not the ones that have answered a question. He, he's highlighting their ignorance right from the very start. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Guys, you are wrong and you are completely wrong. In fact, you're so wrong that you don't even know how foolish your question is. You don't even know enough about what you're talking about to ask a valid question that would yield any helpful response. This is the child who comes to you and in all earnestness and all sincerity says, which is it, mom and dad? Are the clouds made of cotton balls or are they made of cotton candy? Where do you start with that? You're wrong. You just you don't understand clouds to begin with. This is something infinitely more important. They're asking about in this resurrection that we don't believe in, by the way, whose wife is she? And he says, you don't even understand the scriptures that you're claiming to quote from, and you certainly don't understand the power of God. In the first place, you don't know the scriptures. You've asked a question that's loosely based on scripture without any understanding of the scriptures at all. Now, what he's saying here, he's not condemning the fact that there are real questions sometimes. This is not a condemnation of a genuine question. Uh, You read through God's Word, and there are things that are apparent and clear and evident, even on a surface-level reading. And then uh, there are times when we come to passages, and our first response is, "Uh huh? What did I just read? This isn't a condemnation of that. This isn't a condemnation of looking for answers, of studying, of trying to understand something. This isn't saying that every doctrine and every passage and every precept is immediately clear. This is a condemnation of people with no desire to learn, no real desire to know. They've taken something out of the law, They've selected what they think is correct about it, and they really aren't interested in learning anything beyond that. And their second problem was, not only do they not understand the Scriptures, but they don't understand the power of God. You don't understand the Word, and what's worse, you don't understand the one whose power is behind that Word. From the first pages of the law, if they only wanted to read the beginning of the book, from the first pages of the law, do you know what you see put on display? You see the power of God. With a word, 
God who brings things into existence, with the Word who brings light out of darkness, with the Word who separates land from the sea, with the Word who calls forth birds and fish and animals, with the Word who calls Adam out of the dust and breathes life into his nostrils. That is a power that we cannot even understand. Don't believe me? Try it. How helpful would it have been this morning to speak the Word and have all your children awake and dressed, or your spouse, How convenient would it be to speak breakfast into existence? We can't even do those foolish things, and yet here's a God with the unimaginable, unthinkable power to call creation into existence with a word. Romans 1, 18-20 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, who push down the truth, in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. In other words, every man, woman, and child that has ever existed in God's creation has been screamed to that there is a God, that he exists, that he is eternal and that he is divine, that he is more powerful than you can even imagine, and that is just by being exposed to his creation. So no one has an excuse. There is no one who does not have an an understanding, an innate understanding of the power of God, aside from wicked suppression, and that's what Christ is highlighting here, that you don't even understand the power of God. Do you not suppose that if God really called life out of nothing, if God really made all things out of nothing, if God breathed breath into Adam from the dust, could that same unthinkably powerful God not restore life when it was lost? If he can create out of nothing, then certainly he can bring resurrection and life out of death. You don't even have any conception of the power of God. The underlying problem is not that they just haven't read the right passages. The the underlying problem is not that resurrection is just too difficult a concept to get their mind around. The problem is, once again, a heart problem. They don't understand who God is, and they have no conception of his power or what his word has revealed. And then he moves beyond their general failure, beyond the fact that they've just completely missed the point, and now he goes through how they have missed the resurrection the truths about the resurrection that they don't understand. Um, They're not interested in understanding, but his disciples need to understand. We certainly need to understand. So look at verse 30. For in the resurrection, love that. He doesn't begin to defend the fact that there is a resurrection. He assumes that it's true. He doesn't get into the debate. He knows they don't believe in a resurrection. He doesn't get into the debate. Now, boys, before we establish this, I need to make sure that you understand that there is, in fact, a resurrection. He assumes that it's true because God's word assumes that it's true. If they had read their Bibles, they would have understood that Job pointed toward a resurrection. I know that in the end, my Redeemer lives and he'll stand on the earth. And even if my flesh is destroyed in my flesh, I will see God. He would have understood that Daniel in Daniel chapter 12 says that many who sleep in the dust of the ground will be risen, some to life and some to judgment. That Daniel not only speaks of resurrection, but resurrection to a very particular eternal end, either blessing or judgment. He doesn't argue it. He assumes it to be true. And he says, in that resurrection, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but they are like angels in heaven. 
You're asking a question about what marriage in the resurrection, about what marriage in heaven will look like, and you've completely missed the point that it's not even there to begin with. Forget who this lady is married to. There is no marriage in the resurrection. See, because they can't even imagine a resurrection. But if they did, if they could put their mind around a resurrection, the best that they could do would be to imagine the resurrection as largely like this life, but maybe a little longer. Resurrection would be this life, but maybe a little bit better. Maybe some of the rough edges are smoothed off. Maybe it's this life, but just the good things of this life made more permanent. And the problem is they've missed, they've missed the resurrection. They've missed the point of the resurrection. There's a reason that so many false religions and cults have their view of eternity centered around the base pleasures of this life. Why is it that Mormons will tell you that after this life comes wives and planets that you have to populate? Why is it that martyrs in Islam are promised virgins in the next life? Because the best that they can conceive of the next life is the best that they can grab onto in this life. Whether that's marriage or physical pleasures. And so because that's good here, that must be the best thing about what's coming next. Jesus says no. The resurrection is not just about the good things in this life getting slightly better in the next one. They don't marry. They don't, they're not given in marriage. Why? Because they're like the angels in heaven. I have to dig at the Sadducees, by the way, because they don't believe in angels. <laughs> Jesus says, not only is there a resurrection, but they're angels. So that was really subtle. It's pretty cutting. I like it a lot. Jesus says, in the resurrection, they're going to be like the angels that also exist in heaven. Now, what are angels? What do they do? Angels are created by God as ministering spirits. They serve God. They serve his people. Uh, he is not saying when they die, they become angels. That is simply not a biblical teaching. When you die, you do not and you never will become an angel. And by the way, that's a good thing. And mankind alone was made in the image of God. Angels were not. Uh, mankind was made to be with God, to rule and reign with God, to enjoy a special fellowship with God that angels don't have. Angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who are his people. Again, a far-reaching sermon that we don't have time for today. Uh, but he's not saying they become angels. He says they're like angels in the sense that they don't marry and they're not given in marriage. What do angels do? Angels are wholly preoccupied with serving and worshiping God. That is the core of their entire existence. They serve and they worship. What is our conception of what is going to come next? What is our purpose going to be for all eternity? Is it just to carry on this life, but without an expiration date? It's not. The heart of the hope of the resurrection is on something much greater. Look, marriage is good. God said it was good. Marriage was designed and called very good. Ask any guy whose wife has gone away to a woman's retreat for a couple of days, they will tell you that marriage is a good thing. And yet, marriage has a finite time, place, and purpose. Why has God given us marriage? Because it's not good for man to be alone. 
Marriage serves for the mutual completion of two people so that they might better serve the king and his kingdom together than they would apart. Marriage is God's context whereby man will fill the earth and subdue it. It is the heartbeat, the core of the family unit. Marriage is given as a living picture of the love of Christ and his church. This visual picture of the headship of Christ, the submission of the bride of Christ, this beautiful unity and love and sacrifice that ought to be a clear demonstration to the world of Christ's love for his church. Now, you move on into eternity in the resurrection. Are those things necessary? When death is done away with, the idea of needing to produce more children fades. When I'm in the presence of my creator, the idea of someone who makes me more complete to serve him fades. When Christ gathers his church to be with him, in, the, the, in eternity, when God's people are with him, there is no longer a fallen world to witness to through the picture of marriage. And so it's not that marriage is pointless. It's not that marriage is bad. It's simply that its significance fades into something much greater. It's the same reason that in the middle of a beautiful day like today, when I go home, I'm not going to turn on every light in my house. I will tonight when the sun goes down. Why? Because I need that light. I need that source to show me what's going on around me. My lights don't suddenly become evil in the middle of the day. It's simply that they're not necessary because they are so far outstripped by something much more glorious in the light of the sun. In the same way, our marriages aren't going to carry over into eternity, not because they're bad, but simply because God's perfection will be brought in and something infinitely more beautiful will take their place. But that isn't their only failure. <laughs> he says, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You've missed the resurrection, but far more critically, you've missed out on who God is. Now he's going to answer a question that they didn't ask. He did answer their question about the resurrection. Um, she's not married to any of them, but you're wrong at your very foundation. But more than that, they need to understand the power of God. He says, have you not read? Now, of course, he knows that they have read. They know that they've read, but he knows that they've read and remained blind. And we've seen that consistently. Every time he asks, have you not read? The assumption is not that they've never read the words. The assumption and the reality is that although they've read them, they've never actually understood them. They've never actually moved into the level of being a heart conviction or even a real knowledge. This isn't the tough stuff. This is the basics. What God is like is a fairly basic thing. He says, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he's moving them back to Exodus chapter 3. We don't have time. Don't turn there now. Mark it. Read it later on in this week. Exodus chapter 3. Moses is uh, shepherding the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro. He's out in the wilderness. He goes up on the mountain of God and he sees a bush that is burning but is not consumed by the fire. He says, I'm going to go ahead and check this out, which makes sense to me. And God says, Moses, uh, remove your sandals because you're on holy ground. And then he goes on to say, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, if what the Sadducees believed were true, 
if when those men died, they simply faded from existence, and that was it, then God could not have said what he said. He would have had to have said, I was the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But he doesn't. He says, I am, present, ongoing. And it's not just speaking to the fact that God continues to be, but that they continue to be. God is not the God of the dead. The Bible is not a book of the dead. Christianity is not a faith of dead founders. God is the God of the living. God is a God who is worshipped by people who existed in time and who carry on in his presence. What did God promise to Abraham? Land, a particular land forever. Seed, descendants more numerous than the stars and the sand, and blessing. Not just material wealth, but a blessing that extends to all of the nations. And by the time Abraham died, what did he have? The land of a cemetery. Material wealth, but certainly nations weren't blessed by him. And a seed line that could be measured in one son. And so on and so on. And you get down to Jacob and you have a group of 70 that goes down into Israel into captivity and they're out of the land. And if God's promises are only good for this life, and if God's promises are only good as long as this flesh endures and then there's nothing else, then God's promises are temporary and ultimately cheap. But no, God says, I am the God of these men. His promises are living and active. His promises carry on from generation to generation, and these people have a hope that lasts beyond them. He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Isaiah and Jeremiah and John the Baptist and Peter and Paul and you and I. He's the God who is ever living and he's the God who is ever faithful, and the reality is all of those men past and present, all of those faithful who die, die in the hope of what is coming. Die with the hope that this life is not all that there is. Die with the hope of a real resurrection. That's what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 15, what we read at the beginning of service. The fact that this perishable body must put on something different. That death isn't the end. Death is the mandatory entrance into something that will not die. That putting aside this temporary flesh is the must happen in order for the greater to happen. And that what we look forward to is not just a continuing of this life, but a little bit better. What we look forward to is life more abundant, more full, more real in many senses than even this. Because eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, and the hearts of men haven't even conceived of all that God has prepared for his people. And you read through a narrative like this, and it makes you think of... Wisdom and folly, we see it both here. Because there are always going to be those who think that they can make the claims of God sound pretty absurd. You still hear them now. How can you believe in a God who created when science can't back that up? How can you believe in a God who is everywhere when you can't even see him here? How can you believe in a God who is all-powerful and all-good when bad things happen to good people. And the danger is that we begin to think that maybe this gospel that we believe in is just a little bit foolish. 
And if it's a little bit foolish, then maybe it's all right for certain contexts, but we would certainly never bring it in front of anybody who we think might outsmart us. We forget what Paul wrote to that church at Corinth long before chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. See, Jesus didn't come with the need to outsmart the Sadducees. Jesus, Jesus did not sit in the temple with the hopes that he would intellectually convince the crowds around him that what he was talking about was real and true. Jesus simply told the truth, and God called and opened people's eyes. And you and I have been given that same call. Preach the gospel. And if you're wondering whether it will sound foolish, the answer is an emphatic yes, and it always has been. The gospel has always seemed foolish to those who are perishing, but that simple, graceful, foolish gospel is what God in his infinite wisdom has used to open the eyes of the blind and cause the stone-cold, dead hearts of sinners to start beating as they're raised to new life. Three things for us to think about today. First of all, we need to understand the reality of resurrection. Whether you think about it or not, whether you've, whether you've ever considered it or not, whether you believe it or not, resurrection is a reality and it's coming. Because this life is not all that there is. And in the end, God will raise men up again. The question is not whether there is a resurrection. The question that you need to consider is what are you going to be resurrected to? Because it will be a body that is built for eternity, either eternal judgment, which is a terrifying thought, or eternal blessing in the presence of God. And that eternity hinges on your response to this one, this Christ. Secondly, what is the hope of the resurrection? You ever think about this? What's the best thing about heaven going to be? And we all know the church answer, Jesus. But how often do we live as if the hope of heaven is going to be something far less? I can't wait to get to heaven because then I'll see Fluffy again. And we're not going to get into the fact that animals don't have souls. We don't want to crush every dream in one day. But Fluffy can't be the hope of heaven. I, I can't wait to get to heaven because then I'll see my husband or my wife again. Now marriage is precious. And the loss of a wonderful marriage is a real loss. And what a beautiful thing that God gives us that relationship and the hope that we will see people again. But being reunited with the spouse can't be the highest hope of heaven. It's not that you won't have to work anymore. It's not that money won't be the issue anymore. 
hope of the resurrection is in the fact that you and I will finally be made fit and complete to stand in the presence of our Savior for all eternity. See, Christ really is the best gift of heaven. If it were anything else, it would be a shallow hope that we have, a temporary hope that we have. And because that, because he is the hope of heaven, because the fact that we will be with our God for eternity is the greatest hope of being made able to exist for eternity, then it ought to impact how we anticipate the resurrection. And that's really where the rubber meets the road. Do we live in anticipation of the resurrection now? Because here's the thing. If, if fluffy is the greatest thing about the resurrection, then I'm going to care an awful lot more about fluffy than I am about Christ. If material things are going to be the best thing about the next thing, then that's going to be an awful big component of what I focus on now. But... If my eternity, if the greatest good for my eternal existence is going to be knowing, fellowshipping, and worshiping the risen Christ, then how much more sense does it make to begin that pursuit now? How much more will my entire life be oriented around anticipating what is going to come by participating in that now? Where's your hope? Let's pray. Lord, we're a short-sighted people. We are we're surrounded by a world that is perishable and fading, but Lord, it's the world that we see, it's the world that we touch, it's the world that we hold on to, and so often, Lord, it's the world that occupies our hearts and thoughts and minds. Lord, will you move our focus forward? Will you help us to be a people who think about the eternal? Not because something good about this life will be made better then, but because we have an eternal hope through Jesus Christ, a living hope, as Peter says. Lord, and in light of that living hope, set our minds and hearts on you right now. God, help us to prepare well to meet you. And Lord, as we do that, as we find obedience here, what a joy there is. What peace, what grace, what comfort there is in pursuing those things now. What hope in the fact that no matter what this life brings, whether it's long or short, whether it's painful, or whether it's filled with what most would call blessings, Lord, we know that you have promised something better than we can even imagine. Lord, if it's true that eyes haven't seen and ears haven't heard, if it's true that our hearts haven't even fathomed all that you've prepared for us, then give us a joy and a hope that looks forward to that with a childlike wonder at the fact that we will receive something that we could never earn, that we will be in the presence of our Maker, worshiping you face to face for all eternity. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.